This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amy, Joanna, Julian, Levi, and an unsigned chronicler. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Amy, who asks, Did the people who owned the wheat field ever get mad about people eating their wheat? Lamy, we saw in Matthew 12 that the disciples ate some wheat from the edge of somebody's field. So it's natural to wonder what the owner of that field thought about this. Was he mad that they ate his wheat? Here's what you may not know. In Israel, God commanded people not to harvest all the way to the edge of the field. They were supposed to leave that so that other people could eat it. The command is found in Leviticus chapter 19. It's in a section that deals with how we should love our neighbors. Here's what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This law was one of the ways that the poor and people who were new to the land could be taken care of. So, no, the owner wouldn't be mad. That's what the wheat was there for. In fact, in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, when Ruth first moves to Israel, she goes out after the reapers have harvested and she does exactly this. She gleans what was left. The owner of the field, Boaz, tells the men who work for him to be sure to leave plenty behind for her. This is how the system was meant to operate. And it's a good reminder to us. God blesses us, and he wants us to use our blessings to help those who are in need. And now Joanna asks, Is it bad if we don't rest on the Sabbath? Well, Joanna, the fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. That day is a time when we should rest from our worldly occupations and devote ourselves to worship and service. The Westminster Confession of Faith gives us a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches us to do. It says we should not only observe a holy rest all the day from our own works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations, but also be taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of our worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, that means the Sabbath day is not just a time of rest and relaxation, but a day where we put a hold on thinking of our own needs and desires and focus on serving God and serving others. Before Jesus, that day of rest was the seventh day, which is Saturday. But then, his day of resurrection, the first day of the week, which was Sunday, became what we call the Lord's Day, which the Confession of Faith calls the Christian Sabbath. Now, it certainly is bad if we neglect this day of rest. God gave us this gift because we need it. And I think it's fair to say that we need it now more than ever. So we should strive to do exactly what the Confession says and make the Lord's Day a time of worship and service. 
Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. What are the unforgivable sins? In the Gospels, Julian, Jesus warns that there is one sin that God will not forgive. You'll find this in Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32, which I just preached about, and also in Mark 3, verses 28 through 30, and again in Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Now, you'll often hear people refer to this as the unpardonable sin, or as you said, the unforgivable sin. I personally prefer the way Jesus describes it. He says it is a sin that will not be forgiven. The reason I like that more is that unpardonable or unforgivable makes it sound like there's something that you can do that God has no power to forgive, as if God might want to forgive you, but if you accidentally commit the unforgivable sin, then his hands are tied and he cannot do it. But really, Jesus isn't saying God doesn't have the power. He's saying that God will not forgive this sin, which is a little bit different. So, the question is, what is this sin, and can I accidentally commit it? Jesus describes the sin this way. He calls it blaspheming the Holy Spirit or speaking against the Spirit. He also contrasts it with another sin, which he calls blaspheming or speaking against the Son of Man. In the Gospels, the Pharisees he is warning are guilty of committing that second sin. They are speaking against Jesus by saying that he has an unclean spirit, that he's healing people by using the power of Satan. The implication is that while what they are doing can be forgiven, they are dangerously close to crossing the line. So, what does it mean to speak against the Holy Spirit? Jesus doesn't really explain this, and as a result, we have to study other scripture to understand what he means. Speaking against the Spirit seems to be rejecting or denying the work of the Spirit. Basically, the Spirit is revealing that Jesus is the Messiah, is testifying to this through the apostles and ultimately scripture. The Spirit is leading us to the truth about Jesus and human salvation. If we reject this truth, then there is no forgiveness, because there can be no forgiveness for sin apart from the saving work of Christ. As a shorthand, you'll sometimes hear people say that the unforgivable sin is unbelief. But this isn't quite right, because all of us are guilty of unbelief. In Mark chapter 9, for example, a man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. We can all relate to that. We're not saved because of the strength of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, which is Jesus. So, to be more precise, the sin Jesus is talking about involves knowing the truth and rejecting it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, describes a person who has been enlightened and has tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, but then rejects this truth. He's been part of the church, the covenant community. He's seen the goodness of God's word and then turns against it and says, no, this is wrong. This isn't from God. It's it's not good. It's evil. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says that if this person rejects the gospel and goes on in his life of sin, unrepentant, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
If you reject Jesus as the Spirit proclaims him, in other words, then there is no other salvation left. Now, throughout the Bible, there is a distinction between sins of ignorance and sins of knowledge. The person who has knowledge but rejects it puts himself in the terrible position of blaspheming or speaking against the only salvation there is. Now, the Pharisees should know better. Jesus is always challenging them because they've studied the scriptures and they ought to know the truth. They're in a different position than someone who doesn't have that knowledge. If they are speaking against Jesus and accusing him out of ignorance, that's one thing. It's terrible, but they can gain knowledge and repent. But if they know who he truly is but still accuse him, then they're burning the only bridge that can lead to life. So, as you can see, this is not a sin people commit accidentally. It's something done willfully. It's not just a careless word spoken in ignorance. It is a deliberate opposition and rebellion against God that amounts to fighting the truth, even though you know it is truth. This warning from Jesus should humble us and teach us the importance of taking the gospel call seriously. When Jesus calls to us, we should turn from our sin and follow him. Because if we harden ourselves and reject the truth, there is no other way to find forgiveness and be united to God. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Levi asks, What do you think it would have looked like when Jesus made the boat that the disciples were in teleport to their destination, the other side of the lake? Well, Levi, it sounds like you're thinking of John chapter 6, where Jesus walks across the water to where the disciples are in the boat. Here's what John writes. He says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As far as what it looked like when all of this happened, well, as John says, it was dark, and the seas were rough, and the disciples were desperately rowing, so visibility was poor. But they did see Jesus walking toward them on the water, and it scared them because they couldn't tell who it was. When they realized it was him, they rejoiced and received him into the boat. Now, all of that, I think, is easy enough for us to picture. Then they look around, and hey, we're there! John doesn't say that the boat dematerialized and reappeared on land or anything that suggests teleportation. He just says that suddenly, once Jesus was with them, the journey was over and they'd reached the other side. They saw the storm, then they saw Jesus, then they saw that they'd arrived. When I try to picture it, I imagine myself in the boat with them, and I think it would have looked like a storm one minute and dry land the next. And finally, an unsigned chronicler asks this question. When you were a kid, what did your friends, parents, and sibling call you? Well, some people are given nicknames, and other people choose their own. When I was a kid, I started reading about Alexander the Great, and I decided that it would be a good nickname for me, too. So I started telling people to call me Mark the Great. 
Believe it or not, that worked. Or at least it kind of worked. People sometimes called me Mark the Great, though they may not have meant it seriously. I can't remember if my brother ever called me Mark the Great, but if he did, I know that he did not mean it seriously. But if you want, you can call me Mark the Great. You're welcome to do that. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.